first time it was fathers, the last time it was sons. Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm attorney Barry Vogel. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, our guest is Ronnie Gilbert, a folk singer who lives in Mendocino County and is a former member of the Weavers, an extraordinarily popular singing group in the 1950s and 1960s. When this interview was recorded on September 18, 1996, Ronnie Gilbert had just celebrated her 70th birthday and begun a singing tour with another Mendocino County native, Holly Near. During the course of Ronnie Gilbert's career with the Weavers, that group was blacklisted due to their political beliefs and the Cold War hysteria at that time in the United States. In our conversation, Ronnie Gilbert and I discuss what it was like to be blacklisted in the early 1950s. We also talk about how she feels older people are treated in today's society, that is, the today of 1996. Ronnie Gilbert needs little further introduction since she speaks so eloquently for and about herself. The background theme music for this edition of Radio Curious is the song Mothers, Daughters, Wives, sung by Ronnie Gilbert, Holly Near, Arlo Guthrie, and Pete Seeger, taken from the Harp album recorded in September 1984. When I spoke with her by phone from her home at that time in Berkeley, California, I asked her how it was that she came to be involved in a singing career. I, I don't remember a time when I ever didn't sing from age five or so when my my parents put me into dancing school and I, I ha- had to lead my little dance class in a in a routine and generally all through school in those days back in New York City there was always a chorus in school there was always a choir and uh, we moved from place to place in the depression you know trying to find better and cheaper housing and I had I went to a lot of different schools and there were always there was always a, a chorus to sing in, and I was always in it so there was always that going on and then I belonged to a Gilbert and Sullivan group and uh, also a theater group and acted with a theater group and there was some singing in that. And then at 16, I went off to Washington, D.C. and got a job in the in the housing department during the Second World War when they were hungry enough for personnel, for office personnel to hire a, a little 16-year-old know-nothing like me. And uh, I was there I was in this big booming town and kind of a lonely and, and frightened 16-year-old. And down in the basement of the rooming house I lived in, this group used to meet. They called themselves the Priority Ramblers. And they sang what we call now bluegrass music and country music, gospel hymns and so on, with the words changed to match the events and the concerns of the day. For instance, old Bull Weevil song, just looking for a home, just looking for a home. Well, they turned it into people not being able to find an apartment in Washington, D.C. It was that sort of thing, you know, round and round, Hitler's grave, round and round we go. And then gradually they pulled me in, my my now very dearest, dearest oldest friend, Jackie 
Gibson in that time, Jackie Alper, took me under her wing and we sang Johnson Boys together and that sort of stuff. That was my introduction to American folk music. And I hung out with them for a couple of years and then went back to New York. And in New York City, at the end of the war, a lot of people had come back from being overseas, being in different places, and generally regrouped around the things that they were interested in. And I joined in with a folk community. There was a small folk community, largely around Pete Seeger. And the Weebers uh, formed out of a chorus that old Pete Seeger was trying to put together. You know, Pete Seeger is one for choruses. Right, he makes them out of the concerts where he sings. Indeed he does, indeed he does. So there was this chorus, and there were eight or ten people in it, and and gradually it was just, it paired itself down to the four of us. We had this extraordinary phenomenon that our voices just seemed to find each other. I don't know exactly how to describe that, but they just rose out of the other, uh, out of the other voices and, and found each other. And we, our, our harmonies were non-traditional and very interesting. And uh, we stayed together and eventually found a name, the Weavers, and eventually got into singing commercially, which was certainly not what we had started out to do. The other members of the Weavers were you and Pete Seeger, uh, Fred Hellerman and Lee Hayes. Right. Well, of course, Lee, we lost Lee uh, just after the, the uh, film was made about the Weavers called Wasn't That a Time. People who watch public television would have seen that because uh, they played it pretty often. Lee died just after that was made. And then the three of us go on with whatever our lives are and once in a while see each other, but we don't sing together anymore. We have, though, on one occasion, Freddie and I sang recently for uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary on one of their specials. <laughs> we got together with a bunch of people and sang there. And now you sing with Holly Near. Holly and I met over one of her early records, a live album, it was called, which she dedicated to me. I didn't know her. I didn't know anything about it. I think she dedicated it to me because they thought I was dead. <laughs> well, they were wrong. <laughs> but we met over that. Uh, she eventually, we, we met. I was so moved by that record. At first, I was annoyed because usually you get asked if you want, if, when, when somebody wants to do that. And I thought, oh no, I didn't, who is this? And I don't, you know. And then I heard it, and I heard that glorious voice and that marvelous consciousness and that extraordinary songwriting ability. And I was very, very proud to be, to be named by her as a, oh, I don't know, as a model or an example or whatever, you know. And then we made this film. The film was made about the Weavers, wasn't that a time? And we had several people came to be on the, in the film as kind of Weaver's children, people who had been influenced by us, and Holly was one of them. I was so excited by this new young voice, this writing in, a, in another area which hadn't existed when the Weavers were going, which was women's music. And so I was so proud of that, and I wanted so much for that to be in the film, you know, if possible. And sure enough, Holly 
and I did this little bit in the film where she, they interviewed her and I was there, and quite spontaneously, we started to sing one of her songs. Hay una mujer desaparecida, the song about the disappeared women in Chile. And that little 30 seconds or whatever it was raised such a, a storm. People began to call Redwood Records. When are they going to be singing together? When are they going to be? And, and so they said, what about it? And I think we tested our toes in, at the Vancouver Folk Festival and then went on a tour together. And it was remarkable. It was remarkable. It was, for me, it was much like the beginning of the Weavers when we four heard each other because Holly's and my voice just, they just went together. They went together. <laughs> just went together. And this week you're starting another tour. In... And this week we're starting that now. That was 10, 12 years ago. And we've, we did that for a couple of years and then we each went our ways. And here we are doing it again, 10 years later. In honor of your 70th birthday. That's right. <laughs> well, happy birthday. Thank you very much. In your experience in your lifetime and the different stations you've visited in your life, do you have some ideas about how older people are treated, ageism, discrimination toward people with many years? Well, there's a lot to be said about that. You know, for the most part, and uh, somehow in our society, older people are either ignored completely or they're sort of in the way. I tell you, I'll, I'll give you a little example. I used to live in New York City. I've lived a lot of other places in the United States besides that. But I, I found myself in New York City uh, 10 years ago, let's say, 10 dozen years ago, living there. And I got online at a bank, and there was an old man somewhere in front having a hard time with the bank machine. And everybody on the line was jiggling and hissing and carrying on, you know. Here was this poor old guy who was trying to make his way through the buttons and all of that. And, of course, the more they did it, the more upset he got. And so it took forever, and nobody had any patience. It was like they, had to, they couldn't wait the extra half a minute. And I thought to myself, I don't want to grow old in this city. I just don't want to. This is not a good place to be old. And then we moved, uh, my, my partner and I moved out to Berkeley, and she said, you know, there's an awful lot of old people in this town. And I said, no, there aren't any more than there are in New York, but they don't hide here. And that's really what it amounts to. Do you have to hide? You know, can you be seen? Uh, we go to a restaurant, and almost invariably I'm treated like my partner's mother. Well, okay, I guess I look like my partner's mother. But, you know, there's certain attitudes. There's certain, there's certain we don't want to know that we're going to get old. People don't want to know that they're going to have wrinkles. There's, this, there's all this stuff, age creams, so you just look like you're getting old. And we've turned ourselves against our own aging process and old people feel this wherever they go now obviously some people become infirm when they get older and some people don't and we're not, we don't all have to be treated in the same way you know i look in the mirror and i say yes that's 70 i have to practice saying it because 70 seems to me to be old you know it is and i have to practice saying i'm old and, and be proud of that no, but why do I have to go through all these contortions? Because we have really disowned our old people. I want to take a moment and say that my guest this week is Ronnie Gilbert. 
She's talking about uh, her life, her stories. You're listening to Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Ronnie, why do you think it is that our American culture has these attitudes towards uh, people who have many years in their life? Because it sells a lot of cosmetics, that's why. It's only a commercial issue? Of course. It's a, it, really, you know, we're a mercantile society. Everything is merchandise. And whatever can be made money on, whatever can be merchandised, is it, 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 that's a very simplistic answer that I've just given you. But the thing is, it feeds, we feed ourselves off of that kind of thing, you know. It's also economic. I think this we're going to see some changes happening now as the population ages. But But the idea that, you know, that we need to get out of the way so that we can make room for young people, we do get out of the way. We do make room for them. But so does the society have to make room for us. Now, what do we got to hand our kids? Terrible, terrible. Uh, for, for kids to grow up in an atmosphere which says, when I get old, I'm going to be, nobody's going to want me, I'm going to be useless. Ooh, terrible. That doesn't work. I don't think so. Very bad for everybody. In the years that you've been singing and alive and traveling around, I know that you've seen many different people and been in many different towns and cities in the United States and throughout the world. I'd like to ask you how you've seen the change of the spirit of the people evolve over these years. Well, it's been a long life, and I've seen a lot of changes. You know, right after the, the, the war, the war to fight fascism, to get rid of Hitler and all of that, we all came out of that with a sense of, of great hope and and a sense that now that the, that great fight was won and at such a cost of life and, uh, you know, people's well-being, the world was going to be a smarter place, a wiser, better place. We were going to, we were going to, we, we learned a lot about people that lived in in those days, it was so far away when you said Russia, you know, it was just so far away. Today, it's nothing. Everybody travels, everybody. But in those days, it was really something to go to go on a trip that would take you to another country. So we all thought, oh, this is, this is what we're going to have now is a, a real sense of kinship with the world. Well, it didn't happen. What happens almost as soon as the war ended, even before... Soviet Union and the United States were in, in a war with each other after being allies. And both sides, you know, the, the leaders of both sides were making political hay out of, out of all that. And, and we ended up in a Cold War and one that cost this country, cost us, cost this society a huge amount in self-confidence, in fairness, and so on. We hit into the uh, McCarthy period, you know, and uh, what, what's called the McCarthy period, though it happened before McCarthy and after. And we were caught up in that. We, we were out there singing peace songs. We were out there singing around the world songs. The Weavers, you speak Weavers, about. I'm talking about, yeah. And, and we were definitely on the wrong side of things because what we were supposed to be doing was whipping up a war hysteria. And we were no part of that. We were also strong unionists, and we were lefties, you know, and left was a bad word, and red was pinko and fellow traveler and all of this, all these pejoratives, you know. Um, so when we traveled, at first we saw a great hope and a great, or at least I did, a great sense of enjoyment and fun and hope for the future. And then it turned into a kind of fear, kind of silence. We were blacklisted. 
So we didn't travel for a period of time. And when we got back on the road again, there was a kind of despair. And, and you saw the result of this kind of, God, here, we're back at it again. You know, now we're going to fight the Russians. The year you speak of would be when? Well, when we started traveling again after we were blacklisted, it would have been in the 60s by that time. We got together once again in 1956 for the Weavers at Carnegie Hall. And uh, the year after that, we began very limited traveling. We we weren't, we were still blacklisted. We weren't, our, ra our records weren't played on the radio. We couldn't be on television. We were definitely not, not hireable in any of the media. But we did play small concerts and we played colleges and, you know, di people directly did not care much about this. It was, this was something that was whipped up by people who made hay out of, out of uh, uh, advertising and things like that. So we, we did have a wonderful audience there and, and saw the beginnings of the affluent society that we had. And I tell you, nowadays, I'm feeling like there's a whole new generation out there. I, I, I see these young high school kids, very much their own people. They, they haven't picked up on the, the despair. They're, they seem to be finding their own way. And it, of course it goes in extremes. There's some that are really very cynical. But many of, many young people that I've spoken to recently have a lot of hope for the future and it is not Pollyanna hope. It's they know that they're in a wor new world of technology. Then they're learning how to use it. There's some very interesting things happening. I just saw a documentary about a, um, a famous old maverick journalist of the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, George Seldes, who started a, a publication called In Fact. All the journalists in the country used to subscribe to In Fact because it was the only place they could trust to get news that wasn't biased. I.F. Stone, who put out a, a famous weekly called I.F. Stone's Weekly, modeled it on Seldes. Now, I've just been told that there is such a thing on the internet. And it's available not just to journalists, it's available to everybody. I find that ex hugely exciting. And these kids know it. I mean, it's second nature to them. And they know how to plug into that. They know how to use that. So I have a, a lot of hope. I feel like the generation of kids knows something we didn't when we were very, very young because it's a different world. And uh, I have a lot of hope for the future. I can't say what the whole country is like. There's a lot of bad things happening for sure. But I think that we have reason for hope as well. In looking uh, not necessarily towards the past, but in reviewing the past, I understand you're working on a series of interviews that have evolved from Studs Terkel's book, uh, Coming of Age. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Holly's older sister, Timothy Neer, who is the artistic director of a theater in San Jose, San Jose Repertory Theater, has commissioned, the, the theater has commissioned this uh, piece as a theater piece on Studs Terkel's book, Coming of Age, which is uh, interviews with people 70 years old and older. I think his oldest was 99. And I, I wrote a uh, review of this for a magazine, and uh, Timothy saw it, and she read the book and said, oh, Ronnie, we have to do a theater piece on this. These people are wonderful. And indeed, that's what I'm doing. I'm calling them, 
telling it for theatrical, for monologues and so on, and also studs his own introduction, which is just hilarious, of his problems with technology. And of course that runs through the book too, you know, at different people's attitudes towards technology. So I'm having a time in my life. I just love this work. <laughs> and Timothy, of course, so she, um, she and I have worked together a lot in the theater. She's uh, directed my production, the production uh, that I did of my own play about Mother Jones uh, at the Berkeley Rep. So we are old working buddies, too. It sounds wonderful. Ronnie, I'd like to ask you uh, how you chose the title this train still runs for the CD that you and Holly released. It was a, it's a song by Janice Ian. Uh, Janice Ian, um, a couple of years ago, put out a CD for the first time in a long time, and it was full of the most wonderful songs. And that was one of them. When we started talking about doing this show together, I said, Holly, you and me have got to sing this song. <laughs> this has got to be one of our songs. And she agreed. And so we do it as a as a duet. And um, and it just seemed like the perfect title. We haven't been together for a decade, but this train still runs. And individually, we these trains still run. <laughs> so it seemed like the logical title for the the CD. It is the title song, and the closing song is uh, Phil Oaks' Power and Glory. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about that in a word or two. I recorded that song back in the 60s on a solo record, and I've always loved it. Holly is a great fan of uh, Phil Oaks, was a great fan of Phil Oaks, and we thought, hey, this is just the right time for this song. Come on and take a walk with me
Ronnie, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before we close, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the close of an interview. And that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Oh, uh, which one? I'll tell you the one I just finished. I don't know what it's got to do with anything. But uh, I had never read any Salman Rushdie. And I just read a book called The Moor's Last Sigh, which is just a fabulous book. It's just so fascinating. This guy is such an incredible writer. It's it's part fantasy, part history, part, well, just, just I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it began. I don't know. What, what shall I tell you about it? Get, get it and read it. <laughs> well, that's it. Oh, hey, wait a minute. I've got a great book I'd like to tell you about. Go for it. One of the best books I've read in a long time, it's a, a very small book, it's not a great big deal, is by is a, is a book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. And I have to say that it is one of the best things I've ever read on film. It's, it's not deep, it's very, very accessible. And, it, and suddenly it just gives me a whole new look at, at movies. We've been going out and getting all the Sidney Lumet movies and looking at them on videotape. It's just a delightful book. It's funny. It's informative. And for people who love movies, I can't recommend anything better. The other book that I just read recently is a marvelous memoir by Vladimir Posner, who is a journalist who's... Uh, I don't know. He's kind of half Russian, half American. I don't know which half is, is more is more prominent. It's a terrific book and will tell people a lot about what was going on in the Soviet Union, in the United States during the Cold War years and after. He's quite a remarkable guy. That's a hard question. <laughs> Ronnie Gilbert, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ronnie Gilbert is a folk singer, activist, former member of the singing group The Weavers, and a resident of Mendocino County, California. This archive edition of Radio Curious was recorded on September 18, 1996, by phone from her then home in Berkeley, California. The books that Ronnie Gilbert recommends are The Moor's Last Sigh by Salman Rushdie, Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, and Eyewitness, a personal account of the unraveling of the Soviet Union by Vladimir Posner. The background theme music for this edition of Radio Curious is the song Mothers, Daughters, Wives, sung by Ronnie Gilbert, Holly Near, Arlo Guthrie, and Pete Seeger, taken from the Harp album recorded in September 1984. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're also available in CD format. To get a copy, visit our website for further details. At Radio Curious, we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 
462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us. And prayed for safe return. And after it was over, you had to learn again to be just wives and mothers, though you'd done the work of men. So you worked if you were needy, but you never trod on anyone's toes. And the photos on the piano struck a happy family pose.